Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacked. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... It is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourself. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. <laughs> Howdy, Mark Kenny here from ANU's Australian Studies Institute with this week's Democracy Sausage. In government, they say never waste a crisis, which means if there are changes to be made, difficult reforms, do them when you've got the voters' ear and normal service is being disrupted anyway. That's certainly been the case with the pandemic. Just about everything changed and government leaders had the people's attention like never before. Voters became familiar with Dan Andrews' North Face jacket and with previously anonymous public servants like Brendan Murphy and Brett Sutton. Happily, the government stopped talking about snapback quite a while ago, even if, ironically, that's what the economy seems to be doing rather enthusiastically now anyway. But there are long-running problems that predated the COVID crisis and which in some cases were more clearly exposed by forced shutdowns and other deprivations. Things like homelessness, extreme poverty, precarious casual employment, rental stress, other chronic health concerns, and inequality in everything from education to mobility to nutrition. And now we're into the vaccine stage, and again, decisions are being made which raise questions of efficacy, access, and future prosperity. Health Minister Greg Hunt made the point yesterday that Australia has had 31 days this year in which there has been no community transmission and no deaths added to the 910-strong death toll from 2020. So it's a good story and it's great that Australia is moving to this vaccine stage, but there are many challenges ahead, of course, and probably unforeseen setbacks as well. With me to discuss these matters are Professors Sharon Friel and Quentin Grafton. Sharon Friel is Professor of Health Equity and Director of the Menzies Centre for Health Governance at the ANU's School of Regulation and Global Governance. Quentin Grafton is Professor of Economics and Australian Laureate Fellow at the Crawford School of Public Policy. Welcome back to you both. Good to be here, Mark. Yeah, delighted to be here. Now, let's look at this vaccine first. Quentin, you're an economist, so let me ask you a kind of a, a first-up question. What can an economist bring to the considerations around the vaccine rollout? Well, it's a matter of major public policy, but in terms of my credentials, it's really about knowing how to model and understanding statistics. So there's been publications in the Lancet, New England Journal of Medicine, in terms of the public trials associated, trial threes associated with these uh, various vaccines. So you can, I can read that, I can understand that, I can understand statistics, I understand what's going on in other parts of the world, so I can give some analysis towards that. I don't claim to be a virologist, I don't claim to be able to talk through the, the details of those particular vaccines in terms of what what one does vis-a-vis the other in the context of that, those issues, but I can certainly talk to, to numbers and I'll be happy to do that today. I've also published in the area of COVID. I've worked with public health professionals and written several papers over the last 12 months in the, in the area of COVID. 
Well, the ability to read statistics is, um, is, is, is you know, a skill in itself, I suppose. I mean, all economists presumably can do that. But um, we've seen a lot of homespun or, or, I guess, um, autodidactic epidemiologists emerge uh, through this, through this uh, crisis. And, uh, and, and that's a good thing in a lot of ways. It's great to see the level of public engagement that we've seen with this issue. People have become conversant with, I think, a whole lot of government processes uh, with, um, with, with health terms, with the idea of, um, of testing, of, of, of you know, clinical trials, mm-hmm. some of the principles that are involved there, the R number, you know, the reproduction rate of the virus, all these kinds of things have, have, um, have come forward. So it's a, it's, a, it's a rich and fascinating area and I guess we've all got a lot of skin in this game. We sure do. So let's look at um, at a few. Let's sort of break it down. Um, efficacy is obviously a big issue. What what can we learn about efficacy from the uh, from the modelling that we've seen? Well, there's there's the published data. So this is empirical data, and then there's also data that we're collecting at the moment, or the Israelis, the UK, the Americans are collecting in relation to these vaccines. And the efficacy really is about whether you get symptoms relative to a control group. So the people who've been vaccinated vis-a-vis the people who are in a control group who don't get the the actual vaccine, and you compare the level of uh, whether they've come down with symptoms, and then you can also compare whether they they have had symptoms, have they been taken to hospital, or have they uh, ended up dying. So in terms of efficacy, that's what we're talking about. So you get the vaccine, you don't get symptoms. Uh, it means that you, uh, you, 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 it's been efficacious in respect to you. And you do it in a trial and then you do it out in the, in the, in the general public, so to speak, which is what's happening right now in, in a number of countries. So the efficacy varies. So these, these vaccines are not the same. They, they're, they're uh, they're made in different ways, um, they're produced in different locations, and they've been applied in different countries. So, so it is hard to make those comparisons. But certainly the Pfizer vaccine, which has been applied in Israel, about over 90% of Israelis at least have their, their first dose. It's a two-dose type of vaccine. And it seems to be highly efficacious, which basically means if you get the, uh, the, the vaccination, certainly with the two vaccinations, the, the chances of you getting uh, uh, symptoms associated with COVID-19 are much, much reduced. It's maybe 95% efficacy. So that's a very good vaccine. If you want to get a good vaccine, that's certainly the one that, that's very efficacious. Another vaccine is AstraZeneca, which is being employed in, in the United Kingdom, uh, along with the, the Pfizer vaccine. And AstraZeneca is also going to be employed here in Australia. In fact, the 300,000 uh, vials are coming in uh, just as, as we speak, so to speak. And the Pfizer vaccine, of course, is already underway in terms of vaccinations within Australia. The AstraZeneca uh, uh, efficacy is less than the Pfizer. How much less, that's the dispute, okay? But certainly from the the, the data we have available from The Lancet, that's a a medical journal. That that's where they publish the the, the the stats associated with the trials. It's between 62 and 70%. It might be higher, uh, but we don't know. But that's certainly what the data tells us. So that's a big difference. So, so that means it's a vaccine that you want to get. If you haven't got any choices, you'd certainly want to get the AstraZeneca. Well, at the start of this process, we would have all taken that with uh, Absolutely. All, all those of us who are sort of not you know, kind of paranoid about about vaccines uh, would have all taken those absolutely. sort of numbers. I mean, that's still pretty good, right? Oh, absolutely. So, and and efficacy is very different to safety. So, I just want to stress this to everybody listening. So, we're not talking about safety. These vaccines are safe. The AstraZeneca vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine, and the Nova uh, Nova vaccine that uh, Novavax that we're going to be getting later on in the year. So, all of them are safe. So, we're talking about the ability to stop getting symptoms, and the Pfizer vaccine and the data we currently have available to us is more efficacious than the AstraZeneca. Now, that makes a difference on a population level. On an individual, maybe it doesn't make too much difference, but on a population level, it makes a difference. And this gets to this issue of herd immunity. Hmm. So herd immunity is essentially when we vaccinated enough people with a, a vaccine that has sufficient efficacy, then if we get the virus coming back in from arrivals from overseas, for example, it doesn't turn into an epidemic. That's the that's sort of the, the, the holy grail that we'd like to get to at some point. The problem with the AstraZeneca, because of its efficacy at 62 or 70%, is we were not going to get to herd immunity by AstraZeneca alone, even if we have very high rates of vaccination. So that means that Australia 
will not have herd immunity under the current vaccine rollout by the end of 2021. We might do later on if we add on an additional vaccine for those people who've had AstraZeneca, et cetera, et cetera. So those are big issues. And they're big issues not at the moment in March 2021, but they're going to be big issues after a federal election, increasing pressure to open up the borders. The Business Council of Australia made an announcement this morning. Qantas made an announcement last week about opening up international arrivals. And when they talk about opening up international arrivals, they're not talking about the two-week quarantine which we have at the moment. They're talking about allowing people to come in in a much more freer way. So when that happens, it hasn't happened yet. It won't happen for a few months. But when that happens, then, and if we haven't got herd immunity, <laughs> there is going to be more deaths. Or more risk anyway. and um, Well, certainly more risk. And mm. so so this is an issue that if, uh, I think of great import of public debate. I don't make these decisions. The prime ministers and premiers and chief ministers make these decisions uh, along with uh, medical advice. But that's clearly something that we need to talk about. And the idea that we can just simply forget about it, oh, don't worry about it, is not uh, relevant in this context. It's absolutely relevant because the closed borders – not just at a state level, but at an international level, is what saved Australia. The most important thing that we did in Australia was to close our borders and, and to uh, ensure that when people arrived, they were quarantined. That protected us the most. Of anything I can think of, that was the most important thing that we did. And, and to the extent that, that, uh, that, we, that we had outbreaks, it was when that system broke down. So that kind correct. of vindicates that point, doesn't it? it? It certainly does. And of course, we can do, uh, we can test, we can contact trace, we can do a number of things. We could do social distancing, we can wear masks when public transport and when we're inside. Those sorts of things do exist and there are options available to us. The most important factor of all was that we closed our borders. So if we open up our borders when we don't have herd immunity and just go, we can go through the numbers, it's very straightforward. Okay, so we're talking five and a half million people who are under the age of 18 in Australia, something around that number, they won't be vaccinated, okay? Very, very low risk in terms of them getting any symptoms. There is the possibility that they can also pass on symptoms, there's any cases of that. And then, of course, there's people who won't be vaccinated, but possibly a couple of million Australians won't be vaccinated. And then those people who are vaccinated with Sorry, AstraZeneca... can I just stop you there? Those couple of million, that's people who choose not to be... That is correct. Yeah. That is correct. And then you talk about the people who do, did choose to be vaccinated, but they got vaccinated with AstraZeneca and the efficacy at 70%. So you may be talking about 3 million or so <laughs> Australians who, who, who uh, won't have uh, necessarily the protection that we would like them to have, let's say, if they'd had the Pfizer vaccine. So, so we're talking millions of Australians, and that means we won't get the herd immunity, and it means that there will be potential loss of life if we open up our borders in a way that's not carefully done, not structured, doesn't take into account that, in fact, if we don't have herd immunity, we've got the real potential to have, uh, have a major out, major outbreak. So this is this this is this issue about the vaccine vaccine rollout, the strategy, the timing, uh, the sequencing, and there is a potential. There's a third vaccine that's coming our way. Novavax is coming our way at some point or other, uh, perhaps in the second half of this year. That is also a highly uh, efficacious vaccine. Less than Pfizer, but much more than AstraZeneca, based on the data we currently have. Now, so that's another we, possibility. That's right, and the data we currently have is based on the clinical trials that these uh, um, drugs have to go through uh, in their respective jurisdictions. I mean, the TGA makes the decisions in relation to Australia, um, but those clinical trials aren't identical with each other, are they? I mean, they, they absolutely not different countries. So you've got some of them, Brazil and South Africa. They're quite useful to have in terms of your trials because of different variants, but also different age structures. So and different times, they weren't all done at the same time. So that and makes you don't it... have, for example, pregnant women in conduct, uh, participating in in clinical trials, yet they. It, of course, they exist in the community. Absolutely, and very old. Uh, so in the AstraZeneca trials, they, they had very few people who were over the age of 80. And so this is this issue about 100% of people who get AstraZeneca, 100% will not get serious symptoms. Well, we don't know that. The data doesn't tell us that simply because the very old people are the ones who would be the most likely to be hospitalized or suffer fatalities with COVID. So if you don't include them enough of them in your in your trial, then you can't say for sure that that that, that 
that that's a hundred percent efficacy, hundred percent efficacy, and associated with uh, not getting serious symptoms. So at the point we don't know, but we do have additional data. So remember, there are countries like Israel that have been vaccinating, and the United Kingdom started in December. Okay, so so we now have uh, two months of data, and going to getting more data as we go along. And certainly from Pfizer, the Pfizer vaccine, from Israel, there is very good preliminary data from Israel indicates there's a highly efficacious vaccine. Furthermore, it's effective at reducing transmission, which is another issue. They're not necessarily the same. Yeah, yeah. So, so efficacy is about you don't get the symptoms relative to a control group. Effectiveness is about you not transmitting it to someone else. So in other words, there are people who had COVID who are, they're yeah. asymptomatic. They don't have symptoms, but they can still be infectious. So we need to make sure that's effective. And apparently that from the data, it looks like that's, uh, that does have some, some real value there. So that's another, another plus. And again, I just want to stress to everyone listening here, they're all safe. Okay? Yeah. It's not a question that AstraZeneca is not safe. It's not a question that Pfizer is not safe and Novavax is not safe. The issue here is about efficacy. But do you get symptoms? What's the probability of that? Effectiveness in the terms of stopping infections. Um, those are the issues. And then thinking about the other elements around our strategy. Remember the elements of testing, contact tracing, quarantine of people coming from overseas on arrival, those sorts of things. We can't just let them go come October, okay, where everyone's got been, a, been vaccinated who said they, they want to be vaccinated. We still will not have herd immunity at that point. So we'll need to be able to think through very carefully the public health issues. That's for public health people to think through, but, but don't, don't, don't be misinformed by people who would like us to open up borders very quickly simply because we've all been vaccinated. That's not the, the strategy that we need to follow. We need to follow a staggered sequence strategy and also be informed by what's happened in the UK, US, Israel, those those countries that are that are way ahead in terms of their vaccinations. Sharon, that's going to be one of the big problems, one of the big challenges, isn't it, is maintaining levels of public vigilance, maintaining levels of uh, p- uh, political commitment to to these uh, these the kinds of uh, restrictions that Quentin was talking about that have got us to where we are now to the relatively happy place that we are now, but once the vaccination programs are rolling out and there's a sense that um, you know there's uh, that, that people feel even more uh, I guess immune from from the disease, it's going to be much harder to make the argument that borders should be closed, for example. Yeah, I mean, I think we're moving into. It's going to be a very, uh, very challenging political and governance uh, time. I think you know, really important to remember that uh, within Australia, we've been incredibly compliant. You, unlike many other countries uh, around the world, we have been incredibly compliant. Uh, and I think we have to applaud that for for each of us within society. We have to applaud that, and so the the how do we help people continue to adhere to some of these uh, public health measures going forward uh, becomes uh, a challenge. But remembering that the Australian public have been so good uh, in responding uh, to this, but they, they've been good, but. Um it's, I mean, I, I've spoken about this on the podcast before, but, uh, you know, some people describe it as in, in almost like a negative, that like we've been very obedient. Um, but it's more that there's relatively high levels of trust in Australia, it turns out, for medical expertise, for health yeah. officials, and for the evidence that we could see. We could see it from overseas. We could see, uh, you know, the, the, the early fatalities in the pandemic that we suffered here. And Australians understood, along with their officials, what needed to be done, which is different from just simple blind obedience, isn't it? Oh, oh absolutely. And and again, I think to applaud in the way that Quentin was describing you, know, the the evidence and the use of evidence, the use of evidence. You know, we've had a, I think, a very consistent message coming from our chief medical officers, you know, at the federal and the state level. Uh, there's consistent messaging, the the range of expertise that's been used to communicate that. So I think there's been a very successful communication strategy. Uh, and as you say, that's been really important in terms of enabling trust uh, among the, the public. So, yeah, it's not 
blind uh, obedience. But I mean, I just marvel, you know, when I talk with colleagues and family across the world and they're like, why would you even, why would you just do that? Why would you just stay at home? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, yeah, people are amazed when they, uh, abroad, when they um, see that Australia would shut down a state on the strength of, say, one infection yeah. or two infections yeah. Yeah. Uh, breaking out into the community. But yeah. the numbers don't lie. Yeah. It's worked for us. Yeah. Now, there have been some economic hardships associated with that and the government has, governments have stepped in and uh, provided all kinds of different supports there and that's been absolutely crucial. So it's the integration of all of these things that's really worked very well in Australia so Yes, far. yes. Um, I mean, one thing I, I, I would sort of pick up um, you know, Following Quentin's remarks is, you know, that hasn't happened equally uh, across the country. And certainly when we talk about the vaccine, you know, the equity issue, uh, that is a fundamental, uh, within Australia, but also globally. Uh, so when we think about who and how of getting access uh, to the vaccine, and I know colleagues uh, within the uh, the committee that, that are thinking about the rollout for the vaccine across the, the country are thinking about equity issues, but it has to be front and centre because what we've what we know through the course of the pandemic so far within Australia, uh, and Mark, you mentioned the the governments, the, the various sort of economic and social uh, responses associated uh, with the the lockdown. The most socially disadvantaged groups in society are really hurting. It's not been okay for everybody within society. You know, if you if you've got to stay at home, that's okay. If you've got all of the sort of the the resources and the capital to stay at home, or that you've got the type of job that allows you to do that. If you've got a home, if you've got a home, if you've got a safe environment in a home, so there's all sorts of variability uh, within uh, you know within Australia and, and globally, of course. So when we're thinking about the going forward and you know, how we maintain the sorts of great measures that we have put in place. What we haven't addressed are the underlying social uh, mm. issues that are creating all sorts of problems for people. And the health consequence of that, not the COVID-related health consequence, but the physical and the mental health consequences from the pressures of COVID and the underlying, basically, social inequities are going to be phenomenal uh, going forward, you know, we think we've got a problem with COVID, but the the tail of this uh, is going to be quite significant. And unless we think about that from a public policy perspective, then we're we're doing the the under the lamplight epidemiology. We used to speak. I'm a lapsed epidemiologist. I should say, <laughs> um, you know, you you speak about under the lamplight. You know, you only look at what's under the light from the the lamp, and you forget the fact that there's all of this out here. That's really a major health issue. So I, I, I hope we, if the Prime Minister is listening, <laughs> please fix that. Look, we'll, we, we will talk about uh, some of these uh, social aspects of it uh, in just a moment. We'll take a quick break, but we'll come back and we'll talk about the con- your concept of a social vaccine, uh, but also just the, the way this rollout has begun. So back in a moment. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. All right, welcome back. Now, Sharon, just before the break, we were talking about um, the, the... equity issues around the vaccine. Um, we've seen 
I mean, Quentin made the point about the Pfizer vaccine having, uh, you know, um, very good efficacy according to clinical trials, 95%, this kind of thing. I don't think we'd be going out on a limb if we said that most people, if given a choice, would take the most efficacious vaccine. So there instantly is a question about who gets Pfizer and who gets the subsequent rollout, you know, the subsequent iterations of, of the vaccine program, which is AstraZeneca and, and, and down the track, um, Novavax, uh, among others. Uh, what did you think about the Prime Minister getting the second dose of Pfizer? I mean, that's been a, f- a tradition, if you can have traditions, in, established in, in weeks and months, but uh, it's all been happening quite quickly, but that's the way the world works at the moment. Certainly been the practice in a number of other polities as well, where government leaders have led off with, uh, you know, having uh, being filmed, um, having the vaccine, first up or second up, whatever it is, the argument being that it's about establishing confidence. Quentin has stressed the point quite rightly a couple of times that these vaccines are safe. It's a big issue, this idea of public confidence. That's clearly the logic of the PM having the Pfizer vaccine. Um, but do you see, do you perceive uh, equity concerns about some people getting it and some people not getting as good a one? Yeah, well, I suppose to remember, as Quentin said, the vaccines are safe. Mm-hmm. And the vaccines are a very good thing to have. You know, we didn't have a vaccine before and now we've got a choice of vaccines. So whichever one you're getting, it's really important that you get it. Full stop. Who gets what then throws up the uh, the equity uh, question. So, like, you know, with the Prime Minister, um, I think you know, getting the the second up to get the Pfizer. I think, as you say, it's about the building of confidence. We've got, you spoke earlier of, you know, we've got high levels of trust uh, within Australia with the government. And I think it's just so important that we see the the leader of the country uh, up there getting a vaccine that's to help encourage us to... Yeah, can I just step in? Mm. So so I I think it should have been done differently. Uh, It looked like a very much a, a... publicity stunt and and yes that's good to everyone see that but but why couldn't the prime minister be there with the leader of the opposition or the leader of the greens why couldn't it be there with the governor general why couldn't it be there with people who are stars in the context of uh, arts and culture or sports have a dozen uh, well-known australians all getting the vaccine at the same that would have been a much better look from my perspective mm-hmm. and i just want to highlight there are prime ministers in other countries who've decided to wait their turn so Justin Trudeau in Canada and uh, Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand. So the question is, is you know, if someone who is uh, low risk, relatively low risk in the case of the prime minister, gets a vaccine, it means that someone else who is uh, high risk and because there's a bunch of people who in their uh, 80s and older who uh, who haven't yet received the Pfizer vaccine. So so I think that's an that's an issue and there's an issue of equity. It's an issue of what it looks like. And so yeah, I have I have concerns about that. I don't think it should have been a one man show with him and and a, and a very respectful lady, I think it needed to be a much bigger uh, deal in the context of other well-known Australians. And uh, I think and, you can always get... There'd be criticisms either way, though, wouldn't there? I mean, yeah. if you had a bunch of celebrities, for example, uh, because because the first vaccine that's being rolled out happens to be the best one and it happens to be in limited supply, I think the question of, well, so, you know, the, the sort of A-listers are, are getting the good one and we're getting the, you know, we're getting the sort of well, I would have said half of them get the AstraZeneca and half of them get. Uh, well, they didn't have AstraZeneca. But they did not at the, at the time. time. No, no, they didn't. But look, yeah. I, I, I think I, Greg I, Hunt, to be fair, was was asked about this and said he would be taking the AstraZeneca. As is Murphy, yeah, as yeah. I understand. But, but look, I, I don't want to get petty and tri- petty and trivial about it. No. But, but but these are issues, and we know from the United Kingdom, although they're doing a really good job with the National Health Service in terms of the rollout of their vaccines. I mean, it was a disaster in 2020, and part of the disaster was the communication from the top. So communication from the top really does matter. This gets to what Sharon was saying in terms of compliance, obedience, however you want to will, mm. whatever you want to call it. That's critical to hear. So that getting the right messaging, both in the vaccinations, the social distancing, all that stuff is critical here. And that we need to have that confidence and trust that the people are making the right calls. They're not putting themselves ahead of the queue, all those sorts of things. Yeah. So, so maybe it seems trivial for me to raise this, but I think it is a communication issue. And I would uh, that's going to be critical for us going forward. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, you know, from an equity sense, 
whether it's the Prime Minister, the Prime Minister and a few others getting this vaccine versus that vaccine in the grand scheme, scheme of equity within Australia, it's that's tiny. Mm. Um, there are so many other issues. So I would, I would hate for the prime minister to be able to think, well, if I get apple with this of and that, yeah, pure PR, of course, thing, uh, uh, issue. Um, I'd, I'd rather he pays attention to some of these other much bigger policy issues that, frankly, are getting left off of the hook because of the... And rightfully, we should, of course, be speaking about the vaccine and, and access to the vaccine. Um, but that can't be the only thing if we want to talk yeah. about health. Okay, well, I'm going to uh, yield to that uh, very strong hint. But, uh, but before I do so, I want to ask you one more question in your capacity as a as a public health expert and a lapsed epidemiologist. Is there a concern that we will be outrun in this orderly rollout by variants of the vaccine, of, of the uh, pandemic, you know, the, the, the pathogen? There's a concern. It's always a concern. And I, I'm, I'm going to ask Quentin to come in. I don't know if, if Quentin and colleagues have done any modelling with this. But of course, you know, we've seen that around the world where mm. these variants are coming in and partly through that the travel um, mechanisms that Quentin was... And the vaccine tends to be either less efficacious, we think, with those uh, variants. And uh, and so that challenges your whole program of, of trying to get to herd immunity. Well it, well, it certainly does. So so there's the South African variant, okay? So the African government stopped the AstraZeneca rollout, not because of safety issues. So let me clear it. Not about mm. safety. It's just the, the question of the efficacy. Mm. So based on 2,000 people in terms of what they, the, the numbers are very preliminary numbers. They didn't think the efficacy was high enough in relation to the South African variant. It was just over 20%. That's not, at, that's not good enough. So that is an issue. So they're now moving to an alternatives. In fact, they already have in South Africa. So that is an issue. So that South African variant isn't just found in South Africa. It exists in Europe. It exists in other parts of the world. In fact, it came into New Zealand, uh, into to Australia as well. Mm. So, so those are issues. And so I think this is about the issue of continuing to vaccinate, improve. Um, and, and I believe the fact we've, we've already done it once shows that we can certainly do it again for these variants. So I'm confident that that will be the case, but I'm not a virologist. So the question is, is do we, will, will we need follow-up vaccinations? And the answer to that thing is almost certainly yes. Mm. And certainly for people who are going to be traveling overseas, uh, they will need to be very conscious of, you know, the, the, the vaccine they've received, the efficacy of that vaccine and where they're going. Because there's places in the world that are, are going to have much higher rates of COVID-19, uh, could in fact be endemic in those locations. And so without adequate protection, with vaccination, adequate behaviours, of course, in terms of uh, uh, the sorts of things that we do in terms of social distancing, we'll be putting ourselves at risk, as well as, of course, people coming in who aren't properly quarantine tested, all those sorts of things. Which raises, I mean, because there's going to be enormous uh, equity um issues globally. I mean, if we think they're bad here, they're going to be enormous in with, with some countries being uh, much more slave to the, uh, to, the, to the virus, to variants of the virus without proper public health systems or, and, and, uh, and access to the vaccine for, for, you know, potentially millions, billions of people. That's an issue. Of course, then it raises the other question about vaccine passports that's come up, whether we'll get into a situation where First world people, for want of a better way of describing them, will be able to move around the world with, you know, certification showing they've got um, uh, the, you know, the top level vaccination. Um, I don't know whether that's going to happen or not, but, uh, you know, it, it'd be hard. It's not hard to imagine it happening. No, I, I think you're spot on. I think we're about to see a massive uh, increase in inequities globally. You know, we've got countries stockpiling uh, vaccines, countries who are you know, years away from getting access to, you know, in low and middle income countries, mm. years away from getting access to it. So you've got all of that. Where of, they've got dysfunctional governments, for example. Uh, yeah. as, as well, but, you know, also that there's um, all of the issues of um, access to affordable uh, vaccines and you know whether the um, uh, you know, sort of the the global support for countries versus national uh, responsibility. So all of that is raising its head. That's all about intellectual property rights around vaccines. Um, and then yeah, I mean airlines starting to talk about you need to have a, a little you know stamp that says mm. you've had your. So the sorts of 
um, behaviours that we might and, and practices that we might have seen and would be associated with development. Uh, it's just going to, you know, we're going to see a bifurcated, even more of a bifurcated world, I suspect. Um, which again comes back to the importance of addressing some of the underlying social inequities. Now, this is this idea that you've talked about of a social vaccine, right? So I just want you to sort of explain that concept. Yeah, I mean, really, it's just... Uh, it, it, it's, it's a it, metaphor, it's right? It's a metaphor. It's, mm. It is just a, a language of reminding us that if we want to keep society in Australia and globally, if we want to keep us well prevent further disease, we have to focus also on the social aspects of health and the social factors that contribute to health, not just the biomedical factors. And so the discussion around the vaccines that we've just been having is a part is a very important part of uh, dealing with disease. But what is it what is it that causes disease to begin with? What is it that keeps us well? It's not a tablet or, a, a, or an injection. It's the everyday conditions of our lives. And so the social aspect. And so to inoculate us, you know, to prevent us from having the symptoms of um, poor health or health inequities, uh, to increase the effectiveness of keeping us well uh, and preventing further disease addressing these social factors that we've known for decades and decades and decades, well, for much longer than that. So that's the idea of the social vaccine that we would rule, we must rule out a social vaccine. That's a very fancy way of saying healthy public policy. So, but what, you, what you're saying is that we can use this moment, if we're thinking politically and socially, we can use this moment of public awareness about health, leverage that yeah. to a broader understanding of, as you say, what makes us healthy, what makes us functional as a society and sort of direct that attention in a much broader way than just at this particular virus crisis, if I can put it like yeah. that. And is there a concern in your mind that, I get both of your feelings on this, that what we've seen here with what we've variously described as obedience or compliance or, or cooperation and, and unit, social unity and, and, and however we, we describe it, is there a concern that that's because the leadership class, the middle class, uh, those of us with, with, you know, sort of economic and cultural power um, have been ourselves threatened all of a sudden by a clear and present danger to with this virus and suddenly the machinery of government, the machinery of our entire society has sort of swung into action to address this question, but we are far less uh, kind of uh, activist, if I can put it like that, uh, on endemic problems that exist in the periphery of our society for, for many, many people, whether it be, um, you know, homelessness or diabetes or, or alcohol abuse or obesity or all a whole range of things that, are, that, 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 that afflict many people but which are really not addressed and which have very, very high death tolls even compared to COVID. Yeah, I mean, the, the biggest health burden in Australia is non-communicable diseases. So things like diabetes, heart disease, cancers, respiratory diseases. They are the things that have and are continuing and will continue uh, to make us sick and kill us. And the levels of premature mortality, you know, dying young from these conditions. There are very strong uh, inequities within those conditions as well. And you know, just your point, Mark, of is it that we've seen a, sort of almost like a universal response to, to COVID, uh, which has um, supported and enabled a, a strong government intervention? Well, some of the groups uh, within society who take most action uh, around diabetes or obesity or 
um, cancers are the more affluent groups in society. You know, they're the ones that they're sort of the first responders in terms of the, the early adopters of, of personal responsibility around that. But they are also the groups within society who have much greater uh, financial and social capital that mm. enables them to seek help or to make changes to their lives in ways that uh, less affluent or socially um, marginalised groups don't. But you do raise that much bigger uh, question, I think, of why is it why is it that government does not intervene in the way that we've seen that they can intervene for this particular health crisis of COVID-19? Why do they not intervene in those structural factors that we know cause non-communicable diseases? I, can I just add to that? Because I think there's so many examples. I'm fully on board with what Sharon's saying. So take the issue of water, which I know something about. Mm. So there are tens of thousands, tens of thousands of Australians who don't have access to the water quality that you and I would be prepared to, to drink, okay? So that sort of thing that we would have in Canberra or in Sydney or, or Melbourne, for example. Yeah, I grew up in Adelaide, so you've got to be careful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, even so, – so they're in remote communities, uh, it's not just Indigenous Australians, but these people live in a lot of Indigenous Australians who are in remote communities, don't have access to uh, what I would call safe, long-term uh, access to, to safe drinking water. Yeah, that's easily fixed. It, it, it's, we've got the technology, the ability to fix it. We've got the, we've got the wealth to fix it. Yet it hasn't been fixed. Yet we have decided. Because those people don't have the political capital. Well, to make exactly. It this is exactly your, uh, the point you were raising, and I fully agree with it. And the, and by comparison. This government, and I don't want to focus on this particular government, but this government has allocated last year uh, billions of dollars, billions, not million, billions of dollars for water infrastructure for, for essentially for irrigation. So, so we're, we're prepared to pen, spend money on water infrastructure for irrigation, but we haven't and we're not spending the money to fix the water crisis, which is what it is in remote communities in Australia. So it, it's, it's tens of thousands. It's unacceptable that that happens. And it, we, uh, in the, in the bushfire, um, the blacks, uh, black summer fires that we had in, in 2019, and 20, you know, there are estimates and, and Sharon, I'm sure, has got the better information. Over 400 people were going to die or die because of the smoke inhalation associated mm. with that asthma, various long-term issues associated. That's about half, a little less than half of the people who've died because of COVID-19. And the thing is, well, if it's just simply random, we could just say, oh, well, that's the way the world went. Well, actually, it wasn't random because the, I've done some analysis. And again, this is an example of exposure. Uh, those communities that had the lower socioeconomic advantage or the greater disadvantage had the greater exposure in terms of those those fires, and and so that has that's related to resourcing and and where the where the resourcing went before the fires during I mean all of those sorts of issues. So these are these are fundamental to the good life, so to speak, that many Australians enjoy, but many Australians do not have, simply because we have made the choices that we've made, not to allocate funds, not to do this, not to do that. And uh, this is really the, the, the reset, the future that we need to have in Australia, not just for COVID, but just in general. But, but how do we get to that reset? Because I, I think, for example, of uh, the attitude that Australians have toward their fellow Australians stranded overseas during this crisis. A lot of politicians on, in both parties, so state premiers and, and, uh, and politicians in the, in the current federal parliament, seem to have taken the view that there is limited social sympathy for Australians trapped overseas. Uh, the attitude seems to be that, um, uh, you know, well, they were wealthy enough to go overseas, or they were they had their chance to come back. Um, you know, uh, why should we why should we make special arrangements for them? And politicians seem to have played to that to some extent, um, some more directly than others. But if that's the case about Australians overseas, and if that's what citizenship really amounts to in this country, which I, I, I must say I'm quite surprised and a bit depressed about, uh, it's an indication of how we might feel about Australians here who are suffering lifestyle-related diseases that we talked about, you know, obesity, um, substance dependency, uh, you know, how, how, how do you design public policy to address or to get around the fact that uh, there is an attitude that if people inflict harm upon themselves, 
it's not up to the state, not up to the rest of us to um, sort of dig them out of that hole. Okay. Well, I, I, I suppose a couple of a couple of things there. There's uh, there is some lovely work being done, led by colleagues down in Vic Health uh, down in um, in Melbourne. Um, with with others who have seen so just I've got two examples so one around sort of diabetes and obesity where really the commercial drivers you know you look at the the aisles in the supermarket and I'm told Sharon we have more choice than ever before I'm like yes we've got more choice of junk food than Mm. ever before we've got more choice of booze than ever before but these are just the shops are full of that rubbish um so it's not about for us at the individual level making the choice. You've already curated my choice, i.e. within the, mm. the retail environment. So there's work um, that's been looking at public sentiment around the commercial uh, determinants of health is the, the language of, and that's very related to obesity and, and diabetes. And the public sentiment is we don't like the fact that some of the big uh, food industries, alcohol industries, and it was the same back with tobacco, we don't like what, how they're shaping our society. So there is public sentiment saying we want something done about that. So when governments say, well, we can't intervene, actually the public is saying we would like you to intervene. And the other example I would give is, you know, all the dis- the discussion that's going on at the moment around raise the rate, you know, with job, I was confused, at job keeper, at job seeker. Job seeker, seeker, job seeker this job is the seeker, doll, seeker, basically, yes. yeah. Um, the, I, I just can't remember, the figure's gone out of my head, but there's an enormous public support for increasing that rate, the, the the job seeker and, and right across employer groups and uh, you know, market economists and social yeah, welfare yeah. groups, uh, political parties, even the Nats, I think, at one stage yeah. were, uh, were advocating it. Uh, now, they have done it, to be fair. They have increased it, but it uh, works out to, what, about four fifty four dollars a day, 25 bucks a week, I think. Yes, um, yeah. And which is certainly better than nothing, and I think a lot so of I people think about would say... about 8 to 9% increase, I think, something yeah, like that. Yeah, I, I might just say, no, I don't think it's better than nothing. If So that figure is still going to mean that people will be living in, in a family with children will be living on a tea bag so that their children can eat food and so that their children can have others come and play with them. There's beautiful work that's been done by Anglicare, by ACOS and others across the, the country that have really illuminated the the food poverty, the fuel poverty, just the inability to lead a decent regular life and that that figure is not, you know, the the the, the pathetic increase is not going to make a difference and so I would say what the financial uh, insecurity that many populations in Australia are going to continue to experience is pushing them into conditions that are going to be so bad for their health and will kill them. Those groups with that level of financial stress are the groups who die early. I come from the east end of Glasgow where men died before the age of 50 and it was because of the financial poverty and the hopelessness for the future. That's there's a there's a public policy, there's a social policy that could we know financial um capacity is really good for the economy and we also know that it's really good for people's physical and mental health. I would say do something in that policy area that isn't going to cost you an awful lot of money in the short term, but you will reap incredible financial benefits into the future and you will also prevent a major health burden on the healthcare system in the well, future. Well, it's going to be interesting to see what Labor does on that as a, as a whether Labor mm-hmm. has a different policy. Uh, that, that increase is slated to cost about $9 billion over the forward estimates of the budget. That's not... That's not nothing. That's a fairly significant ongoing outlay. I think it's worth highlighting for the people who are on that. I'm not on it. and None of us are in this this in, uh, this situation, this podcast. But it is an increase over the base rate before COVID. Mm. It's a decrease, of course, yeah. from, from, what, from what they were getting yeah. and a substantial decrease substantial. from what they were getting last yeah. year. The second Agreed. thing I'd raise, and, uh, they're not disconnected issues. So there are homeowners. I'm a homeowner. Okay, so uh, I'm one of those beneficiaries. We've had house prices, depending where you are in the 
country go up 8 to 10% over the last few months, projected to go up maybe up to 15% in some places before the end of next year. How did that happen? Well, there's a variety of explanations, but one of the key factors is our interest rates have dropped, dropped down to essentially zero. And they dropped down to essentially zero because of COVID. Mm -hmm. So there are people who have benefited to the tune of tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. So when you say interest rates have dropped and this has increased demand. Increased demand, asset prices, not not only in terms of our housing market, but also in terms of equities, for example. So people who had wealth are now substantially wealthier after COVID, 12 months after this pandemic got underway than they were before. And it's a crazy thing, but it it happens to be true. So couldn't we just think about it? And we didn't earn that wealth. It just happened because of the nature of of what's gone on in terms of uh, interest rates and other things as well. Mm. So couldn't we think about the people who have actually really suffered, as Sharon Mm. was highlighting? They're the ones who've suffered. A bunch of Australians have done very, very well in terms of their wealth. Can't we work out some system of actually helping them? Uh, I mean, that would be a fair society. It seems to me uh, a very small proportion of that wealth increase could could go to to fund a whole range of different activities, it seems to me, without anyone being worse off compared to where they were in the COVID. That's still everyone. It would be a win-win-win as far as I could see. I don't see that on the table, though. Hmm. Look, we're right out of time. I just want to ask you one very quick question just to get your impressions given where we've been taking this discussion. Would you support a sugar tax? (laughs) <laughs> well, would I support um, I, I mean, this has been uh, yeah, 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 introduced yeah. in other countries, right? And, oh, and, and incredibly successful hmm. in other countries. It's been incredibly successful in other countries also because there's a whole suite of other policy measures as well. A sugar tax in and of itself will not solve the obesity and diabetes problem. A sugar tax as part of a complement, uh, a suite of policy responses would be fantastic. And I expect the economists to say there's a price signal in it at least. Uh. <laughs> well, the idea is you tax bads and you know subsidise goods, but but Sean's point is well taken. Mm. If uh, if you're poor and you're being taxed on the food and the cut that, that you're con- currently consuming, that doesn't really help them very much, does it? So it's a question of what do you do to provide alternatives yeah. and and support in those ways. Look, it's been absolutely terrific having both of you here, Quentin Grafton and Sharon Friel. Uh, thanks for being with us again on Democracy Sausage. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity, Mark. And if you have any thoughts for us, you can contact us on Twitter via at Apps Policy Forum. That's APPS Policy Forum on Twitter. Or email us at podcast at policyforum.net. And you can even get to us on Facebook by typing the words Policy Forum Pod into the search bar. So until next time, that's all for now.